Don't ask TIG listeners. Remember when I asked you to let me know what you're looking forward to this year? Well, here's a really exciting one I wanted to share from a listener named Allison. She says, Dear TIG, a while back I wrote in to ask how you knew you wanted to have kids. Well, now my husband and I are expecting our first baby this March. We are also so excited to be going to your Portland show as part of our Baby Moon Staycation Weekend. I love hearing you talk about your boys and Stephanie on the show. Well, Allison, I'm so happy to read this. And if you need help naming that baby or anything, you know where to ask. Congrats on the new addition to your family. And thank you for making me part of that celebration. And to everyone else out there, if you like this show and haven't bought tickets to my Hello Again tour, get on it. Go to tignotaro.com. I'm on the road at this very moment. I'm in Cleveland in a hotel room, okay? That's how dedicated to this show I am, but also to touring, all right? So come see a show, and then let's get on with this show. I don't know what you call your other half, but I like this is my boo. My boo? This is my boo. This is my honey bunny. This is my everything. This is my girl, my world. What about this is my property? I own this. Mm-hmm. Bought and paid for. <laughs> <laughs> the old ball and chain. This is Don't Ask Tig. I'm Tig Notaro, and I just learned that in the UK, my podcast is known as You Mustn't Query. (laughs) With me today is one of the United Kingdom's best-loved comedians. He's also a writer and host of some of the UK's longest-running game shows, such as 8 Out of 10 Cats and Big Fat Quiz of the Year. He's got two specials on Netflix you can watch. But finish this podcast first. Jimmy Carr, what a delight it is to have you join me today on You Mustn't Query TIG. I mean, You Mustn't Query is a very, very funny title. Um, It's an honor to be on the show. I very much like the show. I like the format. I like the whole idea. I think the, the idea of comedians giving unsolicited opinions, that's how we got ostracized by the rest of society in the first place. Yes. This must be people's, it's the last place to turn, isn't it? It really, really is. If not to you, that would be the last place, right? Yeah, I'm literally, I'm the, yeah, sure. Yeah, I'm the second to last place to turn. Excellent. Yeah. Well, you know, you know about some things. You've been through some stuff. We could do this together. I mean, we've all been through some stuff. We're all alive, right? Yeah. As long as you're not dead. The time of recording. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> oh, my god. This gosh. podcast will outlive us as well. That's the terrifying thing. I hadn't really thought about that before. I mean, I've thought about how stuff that I put out in the world will hopefully be out there in the world, but the world is ending. So I still think we might have a billion years. Do you? Yeah, we might be okay. We might be okay. I'm trying to be, I try and be incredibly positive. I try and like about once a year, I read Stephen Pinker's Enlightenment Now and go, oh, maybe it's all right. It's better than it was 400 years ago. Now, being positive, is it like based in something? Well, it's based in the principle that disposition is more important than position. I think how you see things, Mm. how you see the world 
uh, changes it fundamentally. Mm. So sometimes I'll, I'll sort of read something or something will resonate with me and I'll really hook into it. So there's a William Gibson quote uh, that I often look at, which are my favorite quote of all time, which is the future is here, but it's not evenly distributed. And so some mm. of the freedoms that we have that we take for granted um, you know, aren't available in other countries. And I kind of think they're coming, though. We're on a trajectory where it comes, where there will be gay marriage in Saudi Arabia. Maybe not in our lifetime, but it's coming. It's it's coming down the line. So I'm a great believer in, you know, there's going to be progress. It's just, it's kind of, sometimes it doesn't feel that way because you read the news and you just feel like, oh, everything's terrible. Well, I stopped reading the news about four months ago. And I really get just breaking news moments when people tell me something that's happened. And I'm like, wait, what? And like, you don't know about that? And I didn't hear, no, I'm not reading the news. It's quite deep in a way to stop watching the news because what's it giving you at this stage? And it's quite kind of Buddhist because you're sort of going, well, be present. Actually, you know, this is an advice podcast and the idea of going, actually maybe try not reading the news or, or read a summary once a week. I think actually if you suffer, I suffer a little bit with anxiety, which I, I try and view that in a positive way. Mm-hmm. And I always sort of think, try and think about it as like creativity without anything to do. So if you have that kind of creative mind that's always kind of going, then as, yeah. as you stop thinking about jokes, it'll just worry about something. Yeah, it's a challenge. We're challenged. We're challenged, listeners. And we're going to try and help those that are equally, if not more challenged than we are. You you wrote a self-help book. I tell you what I did. I I wrote an autobiography. I certainly took the autobiography dollar from the publisher. You know, I'd I'd be a fairly, uh, I'm on TV a lot in the UK and I tour a lot. So I could sell a few copies with my face on the cover. And so they they said, great. And then I started to write the book and it became a self-help book because that's naturally... In, in lockdown, what kind of came up? The interesting stories about my life were about getting into comedy in my mid-20s uh-huh. and having this adventure. And what was it that changed? The only thing that changed was like those fundamental beliefs about what was possible. I was going to say, what's your main piece of self-help advice? But I guess, would that be it, what you just said? I'll give you the cheat. All self-help books say exactly the same thing. They all say, prioritize later over now. That's literally every single self-help book is like, you know, Hard choices now, easy life later. There's lots of different ways of kind of stating the same thing. I mean, with most stand-up comics, with every stand-up comic that we know, no one comes out fully formed and good. It takes us 10,000 hours to get anywhere. And then it probably takes 40,000 hours to get good because we look back at the first 10,000 hours and go, oh, (laughs) dreadful. I watched a a documentary that you made and you talk about when you found stand-up comedy and the sense of elation of going, oh, I found the thing that I meant to do. I kind of want that for everyone. Yeah. Not everyone gets to do that. Nothing makes me happier than when I hear somebody say that they love what they do. They're telling you I'm on a quest. Mm-hmm. And like we've got a quest without end, right? It's like it's a properly kind of archetypal thing of like going, I want to be a better comic. With every turn and every new show, there's a new quest and a new adventure, but it's all part of the same thing. You're building something. 15, 20 years you've been doing this? Maybe 22 now. I started around 2000. Okay. I think it's a bit like airline pilots, right? Mm -hmm. If you meet an airline pilot, and I often do in an airport, you're chatting away, and you never really get an answer out of them about how long they've been a pilot in terms of time. They'll give you the hours in the sky. Mm -hmm. Stand-ups. I think it's like, how many hours have you got on stage? Because for me, when when I started, I was very lucky. There was a great little circuit in London. 
And it wasn't like LA or New York. You could get up pretty much every night in maybe two clubs. Mm -hmm. So I was doing 300 shows for a year uh, for the first five years. So I got like a wealth of experience and then was just writing, writing, writing. I mean, I was getting up pretty nonstop. I would say five to seven nights a week in the first few years that I started. It's not happening anymore for me now. Well, I think it's tougher now. Uh huh. You know, 15 years ago, there wasn't this, it wasn't this incredible cultural thing happening. It felt mm. like there was, you know, it was, there was there was stuff going on. There were some big comics, but people weren't touring in the same way. People weren't filling arenas. People were filling bits. Yeah. I don't like it. I don't like playing a room where if someone shouts something out, I want to be able to hear it. I mean, I'm, I'm not hoping people are going to heckle me, but if they do, oftentimes I just feel like, listen, I'm not for everybody, or I'm sorry you feel that way, <laughs> and then just move right on. <laughs> and, it, and it typically shuts people down when I don't engage. I remember somebody saying to me, and she thought that I would be hurt. <laughs> she said, well, just so you know, that entire table got up and walked out of your show. And I said, that was it? That was the, those were the only people that walked out? That's nothing. What are we talking about? But she thought it was going to destroy me. But I, I carried on. I made it through. You know, it's success on your own terms. I don't know about you when you felt successful as a comic, but for me, I was playing the clubs in London. Mm -hmm. Like I was doing three clubs on a Saturday night. And I remember like getting paid cash and thinking, well, I'm literally living off my wits, well, literally and metaphorically, this'll do. Oh, my first open mic, I was like, nobody can touch me now, you know? <laughs> first, I mean, truly. And so everything since there has been pretty unbelievable. Jimmy, you seem like you're pretty great at giving advice. And so I'm excited to see what's to come for this episode. This is the major leaks. Okay, what are, what's our first problem? What are we dealing with? Well, our first question comes from one of your fellow Brits. Oof. Viv writes, I'm a 56-year-old widow. I have a new age-appropriate man in my life named Kevin. My question is, how do I introduce Kevin? Boyfriend is ridiculous at our age. Significant other is pompous. Additionally, I am English and Kevin is Irish, so any reference to sex or emotions will cause embarrassment. My mother's suggestion is gentleman friend, but she is 92 years old. Well, here's the thing, Jimmy. When Viv says, I have a new age-appropriate man in my life, I mean, how old was the previous person? You know what I mean? She's saying this isn't a toy boy. I think the, the crux of this is and I like her mother's idea. I like the idea of the answer might be in history somewhere. You say this is a gentleman caller. Oh. Sounds like it might be in Bridgerton might be the answer. We've been taking long walks together. Something euphemistic for uh, sometimes he stays over. Or he uh, butters my biscuit. How about that? This is Kevin. He's from Ireland. Sometimes he butters my biscuit. Or the British version butters my crumpet. That sounds quite adorable. Why don't we flip it around? Why don't we start with the worst possible thing we could say? What's the worst thing we could say here? Uh, this is Kevin. We bump uglies. I think buttering a crumpet is more graphic. Yeah. This is Kevin. He's sexual dynamite. Yeah. And it's also, it's a lovely compliment to Kevin. It really is. 
I also think that there could be just a world where you could introduce him as your new age-appropriate man in your life. It's not terrible. I mean, it does. No one's got an issue with that. There's a ring to it. You know those those kind of intimate little things that you share. Uh-huh. I like sometimes the idea of like going, well, okay, well, we can say this is. Mm-hmm. Please meet the love of my life. I like that thing of the public display of affection like that. The idea that Viv would say she's a, w- a widower, she's lost someone. And she's found love again. Mm-hmm. And the idea of proclaiming that and saying, taking a bit of pride in it, saying, hey, listen, this is the love of my life. That's glorious. Yeah, you can go glorious or you can just go Kevin. You can say, this is the love of my life. You could say, this is the guy that butters my crumpet. You could say, this is my new age appropriate man in my life. Or you could just say, this is Kevin. I think there's a lot of different options here. The great thing about this is go out for the night to the local bar, meet 15 different people and try 15 different hats on. Try different things and see what works for you. If it's something that makes you both laugh, Mm -hmm. we think that's a great measure. Yeah. All right, Viv. We think you should call Kevin your, what did we decide on? I think we made a long list and just went, look, just try lots of different ones and see what feels right for you. Yeah. And see what makes you do a little giggle. All right, Jimmy, let's take a break. But you're not going anywhere. We have more questions to deal with after this. If you're shopping while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast, then you know and love the thrill of the hunt. But are you getting the thrill of the best deals? Rakuten shoppers do. They get the brands they love with the most savings and cash back. You can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Macy's, Sephora, and Zappos. And even stack deals on top of cash back. It's easy to use and you get your cash back through PayPal or check. The idea is simple. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers, and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. We are back. Jimmy, you're currently on a comedy tour called Terribly Funny. Yeah. My tour is called Hello Again. Maybe we could cross paths and... Hello Again Terrible? We could do a double header. Hello, I'm Terribly Funny Again. Yeah, that's nice. This is all relevant to our next question. Samantha T. writes, Tig, I have an impossible decision to make. I really want to come to your show in Kalamazoo, Michigan on March 12th. But my cousin is getting married that night down the road in Battle Creek. I've known my cousin his whole life, but your deadpan is aspirational. Who is more important that night? No other tour dates work for me. Maybe you can crash the wedding after your show. Samantha, this is, um, you know, I was expecting you at my show. So I don't appreciate this. Getting married. Now, I don't know enough about these towns to profile. You don't know enough about Battle Creek, Michigan? Or Kalamazoo? Kalamazoo, I know. We all know Kalamazoo. Here's the thing. The world that we live in now, listen, you may only play that town, Battle Creek, is it? Where are you playing? 
I'm playing Kalamazoo, okay? I'm I'm a little more big time. I'm not playing Battle Creek, Jimmy. Okay. It's Kalamazoo. Kalamazoo. Sorry. I mean, they're interchangeable in my head. Okay. Well, they are very different. So Kalamazoo, yeah. you may only play there once, whereas her cousin will be married many times. If we just look at the statistics. You're right. He's going to get married. Yeah, sure. You're not going to this wedding. But the next wedding, you're going to make a real effort. That's really good. I would never even have come in from that angle. But I think that you're on to something. I just want to say that there's no world, whatever Samantha decides to do, where I'm going to be crashing a wedding with her. I mean, I'm a, a vegan married person with two kids, and I have a rod in my back. So I'm not one for wedding crashing. Are you, Jimmy? I think I've crashed a wedding, yeah. So in in Britain, there's a great tradition of theatres. Like every town has a thousand-seater theatre, mm-hmm. and a lot of them were built for Charles Dickens, weirdly. A lot of them were... Charles Dickens was a huge draw, like a live draw. Okay. Anyway, in Ireland, they don't have the theatre, so you play hotel function rooms. So they put a thousand people in the room where there would be the wedding, mm-hmm. and some of the hotels have got a couple of these rooms. So often there's a wedding going on next door when you have a show. And then you end up in the bar afterwards and there's a wedding going on and they go, aren't you the guy from the thing? And you go, yeah, yeah. I mean, I've had some good nights. You know what? Now that you're saying this, I'm remembering my first girlfriend and I, we saw that there was a wedding at a hotel in downtown Austin and we went home and we wrapped a box with a rock in it. And we went to the wedding and put the box with the rock on the table with all the other presents and went and hung out and wandered around and had some food and then left. We didn't do anything crazy, but it was fun to get dressed up and place a box full of rocks on a table and then have some food. So the idea that they'll go, there's no label on this, but they must mean something. They must have some significance to someone. Maybe they've Maybe they're, they're mystical. I like the fact that Austin, Texas, I imagine someone was going, well, I mean, these could be from some sort of shaman that we, we're not aware of. That's yeah. fantastic. Mm-hmm. As long as you're a good guest, I think crashing a wedding isn't a terrible thing to do. If you add value as a guest. Yeah, I think we definitely added value, like shock value, in that we were probably so poorly dressed. What we thought was dressed up, I think, was maybe alarming for people at the wedding. But that's added value. You give people something to talk about. You, you know. But I've always said, you know, if you're going to crash something, we'll chat to the, you know, go to the, go to the table of singles and chat to people. Great. Exactly. I think this lady's got to come and see you live. I think that's more important to her. The reason that she sent this message in mm-hmm. is to go, look, she really likes your comedy. She really likes the deadpan. She needs to feed her soul. I think this is about... Samantha, I don't feel like it's me versus her cousin. I think she needs to figure out what she wants to do. Does she want to support her cousin or treat herself to a night of comedy by a vegan married person who's 50 years old with two kids and a rod in her back? It feels like your description of self, Mm -hmm. you're saying there will be no romantic liaison with this lady. You're really, you're making that very clear. You've mentioned married, you've mentioned two kids. So there's a rod in your back. Yeah. I mean, if Samantha is coming out to Kalamazoo thinking there's going to be some crumpet buttering, (laughs) no, no. No, no. 
And I don't know if I've mentioned this enough, but I am vegan and married with two kids and a rod in my back. So you need to step off, okay? And you need to either get a ticket to my show or go to your cousin's wedding, okay? No funny business with me, Samantha. How is that, Jimmy? I I like the fact that you have so much confidence Mm -hmm. that this entirely innocuous inquiry has Mm -hmm. prompted you to say, back off, stop making a pass at me. Thank you. All right, Samantha T., congratulations to your cousin. Jimmy, I hear that you have a two-year-old son. Yeah, two and two months, yeah. It's going to come in handy for this next question. Okay. The Harrises write, Hi, Tig, we're parents-to-be, both older, 35 and 38, and still working on getting stable in our careers. What advice do you have for us as new parents? Anything you and your wife really nailed it with? things you wish you did differently. I cannot stress enough that it's so important to talk about every possible thing that you could ever imagine. Like, what kind of schools should we send our kids to? Are you comfortable with our kids being near a swimming pool or getting swimming lessons at a very early age? Do you think you're going to want to live in this city and raise kids or in this neighborhood? Or do you think you're eventually going to want to move? What kind of food will we feed our kids? There's so many conversations. And I feel like the only thing Stephanie and I have nailed is continuing to stay in conversation with each other. Jimmy, do you, is it, do you just have the one kid? I just have the, the one kid. Uh-huh. I don't know. I mean, I'm trying to think of the, the best advice I got given. I mean, they they say a lot of weird things to men. They sort of say like, "Oh, oh, the first six months you're not really involved. You're not really there." And it's like, "What are you talking about? <laughs> What's going?" I think going in with your eyes open and going, "Look, things are going to change," and it's it's great. That's why you did it. Yeah. It's just I can think being kind of. You know, I mean, it's all the usual stuff of just being kind of present and. I don't know what the best advice. Routine is probably the best advice. Routine is so good. Nailing the routine. like So meal times are absolutely sacrosanct and bedtimes and all that sort of stuff. But it's also for you, for your sanity of going, we know exactly how the house runs. Spontaneity. Mm-hmm. Just wave bye-bye to spontaneity. Oh my gosh. Stephanie and I would marvel over how every now and then it still comes up where we'll turn to each other and say, <laughs> remember how we used to just decide last minute to just leave the house or go get something to eat there is no please <laughs> it's also that thing of like just enjoying the joy of it because sometimes it's it's like it's so kind of i don't know, i found it kind of fascinating this idea that i haven't really met my son yet you know he's like he's yeah, he's still showing up but they're born with a little personality they kind of they you know who they are. and Oh, people always ask, now that they're five and a half, are you starting to see their personalities? Are they starting to shine through? And I'm like, they showed up the first day exactly who they are. Yeah. I mean, obviously, it's becoming more and more fine-tuned. Becoming a parent is like having a medical procedure where your heart now lives outside your body. Mm-hmm. I remember reading that like before I had kids and then thinking, yeah, that's nice. And then afterwards and going, oh, that's nailed it. That is exactly what it feels like. And it's truly, no. there's no way to understand that. It's. I always tell people, it's like falling in love or having a child or anything like that. You will never understand it until it happens to you. 
And I think that what Stephanie and I also do is we really create a sense of community around them that's bigger than just our immediate family. We have so many friends and family members. Yeah, it takes a village. Yeah, yeah. And just increasing their trust in other people outside of us. Yeah, have you read that book, The Midnight Library? Mm-mm. It's it's an interesting one about like all the different possibilities of life, yeah. all the different places you could have gone. The idea that when you die, you go to this place where they're, they're, you, and you can read the books of the different stories that your life could have taken, the different turns. Ah. It's an interesting idea, like philosophically of going, well, that thing of like with kids, you're making all these decisions, making them together and coming up with a mechanism for doing that. I think the first thousand days are incredibly important. I think all therapy that you do in the rest of your life is making up for something that's gone wrong in the first thousand days, the first sort of three years, basically, of your life. Try and just keep them, you know, their diet. Your, you know, if you feed them healthy food and keep them away from screens for the first three years, you know, the, the leg up that you're giving them is so huge for their gut health, for their, you know, all of that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. It's really kind of worth being a bit hippie-ish about that stuff early on. It's, it's funny because my... uh I overheard my sons, they're they're both five and a half, um, talking about video games. And um, and one of them, said, <laughs> our son Finn said, what's a video game? And uh, his brother Max said, it's, it's something like you play puzzles on a computer or something. That is success. <laughs> you know... They're going to be on Grand Theft Auto 5 in a few yeah. years. Yeah, and I want to put it off as long as I can, yeah. Yeah, and then hopefully it's not, you know, the sugar and the video games and the things, you know. It's, listen, it's that thing that I came back to, uh, you know, I opened up with. It's hard choices now, easy life later. Yeah. So the idea of, like, not giving a kid a video game or a McDonald's in the moment is like, ah, oh, it'd be so much easier. Well, can I tell you another funny thing? From my, Our family is vegan, including our children, and... um. And uh, my father-in-law lives with us, and he was reading to my sons the other night. Right. And at the end, I guess the very end of the book is something about roast beef. I I don't know. But my father-in-law finished the book and, you know, said something about roast beef and then shut the book. And then my son Finn said, is roast beef chicken? And, uh, And then my son Max said... What's beef? So um, <laughs> they they don't have a clue what's going on in certain ways that uh, it's the child equivalent of not reading the papers for four months. <laughs> right? Yeah, I don't read the news. They don't know what beef is, and uh, they think video games are puzzles on a computer. That is the aspiration, though, to have kids that don't know what video games are. It's that's beautiful. <laughs> Well, I can I can feel that it's coming around the corner because, you know, their friends at school are clearly talking about it. So we'll see. We'll check in with each other in a year or so, if not a month or so. But I mean, this is like the new parents is just like you haven't met your kid yet. That's exciting. You don't know who you are as parents yet. Mm-hmm. You don't know what voice are you going to use with the kid. Yeah. I have a voice that I use when I'm talking to him and having conversations with him. I wasn't aware I was going to have that voice. <laughs> it's kind of a nice thing to discover. It, it really is. The Harrises 
Congrats on your little baby, Harris. You guys are going to do, you'll do great. Not as good as you. I mean, they'll do fine, but I mean. Yeah, their kids will probably know what beef is and be playing video games, but um, they'll do fine. Jimmy, our final question comes from Laura. Laura writes, I might be described by some people as uptight and get easily stressed out by little annoyances. What advice do you have on going with the flow and appreciating the absurdity of life? If you find everyday things very, very stressful, what's going on there? Maybe dig a little deeper because everyone has the same everyday stresses and struggles and Mm -hmm. someone got your order wrong, someone delivered the wrong food, someone parked in your spot, you don't like your new haircut, the thing wasn't as good as you expected to be, whatever the, the, the tiny thing is. And it's disposition is more important than position. It's like how you view the world, your perception of what's going on is the important thing, not what's going on. Mm-hmm. Some people just see a sunny day and some people see, oh, well, there's, a, there's traffic. Yeah, whatever's going on, I think it is at least good that Laura knows and is in touch with this about herself. You know, I think that's helpful to be like, I am this way, you know, because some people can be in pretty deep denial about themselves or make excuses. There must be a continuum of like, I, I, you know, if you, if you mentioned the phrase uptight and then you would think some people are very carefree mm-hmm. and you go, well, there's a, there's a balance to be struck between the two, right? You don't want to be too carefree and in the moment you don't want to be too uptight and worried about stuff, but there's a, what is being uptight doing for you? I always think like all human activity is purposeful and why is she being uptight? Because it probably serves a purpose. So often, it's often that thing of like talking to herself and saying, well, what do I want when I'm being uptight? What's that doing for me? And if it's okay for her not to be uptight, if she can just go, well, that's protecting me from something or it's keeping me from having accidents or whatever her thing is, sometimes it's okay to let something go because it was it served a purpose in the past, but you don't need to be uptight. Maybe she got through college through being very uptight and fastidious and studying hard. I don't know Mm -hmm. what she does, but, you know, sometimes it could be something like that. And you go, it's a vestige of a previous life that you Mm -hmm. led. You don't need it anymore. You could let go of that worry. Well, and I think about, and I think letting go is kind of key because oftentimes when I feel stressed about something, I'll try and take a beat and think, what if I wasn't here in this room and knowing this information would the job survive, get done? Would life go on? And the answer is typically yes. And this is, I mean, it's kind of heavy, but, and I've probably mentioned this on the podcast before, I don't know, but I oftentimes think about when I'm really stressed, I think about September 11th when the planes went into the building. And I remember on the news, they said that papers and files were found as far as New Jersey. I pictured the papers slowly floating from Manhattan over to New Jersey and thinking, oh my gosh, there was somebody's boss at one time riding somebody's ass about those papers. And now they're in New Jersey. That's a really interesting way and a very stark way of pitching perspective. And just go, look, you need to step back from this and go, look, in, in the end, on a long enough curve, we all die. So next time you feel stressed, do something positive. 
Mm-hmm. Pick someone you love. And also, you know, when you're stressed, if you can even take a moment to be like, ah, oh, this is kind of nice, this feeling of stress, because it's a sign that I'm alive. Dead people do not get to be stressed. So there is that positive. And I think that's kind of what comedy gives us sometimes, that pullback reveal of a joke, of kind of seeing things in that context and processing things. I think if she's aware of this and she's a fan of the podcast and a fan of you, I always think humor is a great way to deal with these things. So if she is someone that feels like I'm a little bit uptight and she's aware of it. And it sounds like she might be a bit self-deprecating. Mm-hmm. The idea of maybe using humor as a tool to engage with the world. Yeah. That's a nice way to sort of mediate these things. Find some funny thing that you say to yourself that can kind of keep you in check or snap you out of something. Of course, it could be that she's, uh, she does kidney transplants for a living. She's a surgeon. And this is absolutely appropriate levels of stress. <laughs> she works in a life and death situation in an emergency room. And she's in charge of the organ donation. She's going, I get stressed about these silly things. But really, doesn't matter <laughs> if people live or die. These silly things. <laughs> these silly things. I know I'm the head of a children's hospital. I find myself getting stressed about the survival of the children and it's just being silly. Laura, take a deep breath, all right? And just take our advice. Jimmy, now that we've helped everybody, we have one last thing to do. Sure. It's a segment called Advice of Yesteryear. When Jerry brags about taking Ginny out, he learns that she dates all the boys. So as we see now, menstruation is just one routine step in a normal and natural cycle. How do you choose a date? Well, one thing you can consider is look. I did everything you said, but my boss still hasn't asked me to lunch. Oh, lovely. I like this bit. Okay. This is where we take a real question from an advice column of yesteryear and try to answer it a little better. First of all, is it true that they call advice columnists in the UK agony ants? Yeah, agony ants. That's a real thing. Yeah, the, an agony aunt would be someone who responds to these things in a magazine. So we'd have famous agony aunts. It's so funny how certain things just don't travel, you know? A fortnight and agony aunts, just <laughs> odd terms to you. Yes. All right. Well, this is from a book titled Never Kiss a Man in a Canoe, Words of Wisdom from the Golden Age of Agony Ants by Tanith Carey. This question was submitted in 1929. Okay. So you've got to figure, you've got to figure there's the Wall Street crash. Mm -hmm. um, the, the, the rise of the right hasn't happened yet. But okay, right. Well, I've got the historical context. We, we, I know okay. what we're dealing with. Where are we with flappers? That's where I always, that's my marker. Flappers are happening. Yeah. People are flapping. October 1929 is a crash? I think it was October. Beatles have not come to America yet, and there's a lot of flapping going on. Someone told me about a story about flappers. You know, because the, the flappers, the idea of the roaring 20s, it was a more promiscuous age. Yeah. What was the thing that caused that? Well, all the men mm -hmm. died in World War I. So many young men died that the women had to compete in a different way to get men. So they could no longer be chased. So they had to go out and go, yep, this is all available this evening because I need to find a man. That's what changed. That was the thing that caused the Roaring Twenties was the terrible, terrible, a generation of men were wiped out. So the men that remained, there was more competition. Wow. And Interesting, then right? 1930, all the flapping stopped. 
That's a stop flapping. January 1st, 1930. Flapping was done. (laughs) Okay, Betty writes, I am over 30 and I want to be married. I have refused seven proposals altogether for the simple reason that I am sure they came from men who wanted my money and not me. Would you advise me to masquerade as a parlor maid or something of that sort in the hope of finding genuine love? Presumably this lady thinks she might be in a fairy tale. Because that's exactly the plot line of quite a few fairy tales. Wealthy woman masquerades as a maid and then is discovered to be a princess. Mm-hmm. I don't know about that thing about like, oh, they only love me for my money. And you go, yeah, but if you've got money, that's a part of you too. That's something mm-hmm. going on. Yeah, it's lovable. There's a lot to be said for acceptance. You know, accepting who you are and where you're starting from. You know, some people start with nothing and that lights a fire under them and they work harder. Some people have got money. Pointless pretending that you don't. It's often that thing of like when you see the supermodel girl that wants to be taken very seriously and you go, well, no, lean into your good looks. Use that as well. Use what you've got and build out from there. Mm-hmm. I was thinking like if she's a rich lady and someone likes her because she's rich. OK, if you do you like him? Yeah. And it, it seems like these men are coming after her. So maybe she needs to start actively choosing men for herself. You know, I wonder when that changed in our society, because it's all very recent the idea that men were pursuing. So men were kind of leaning in for the kiss, metaphorically, yeah. and the woman maybe pull away, but they wouldn't think about, well, what do I want from a man? Exactly. This would be a crazy thing to say back then, but it's so kind of recent history. It's like our grandparents would have been around at that era. And like, it's a totally different way of living. God, I can't believe my grandmothers were flapping around. Flapping around and going, I oh. guess I'm waiting for someone to ask me out. They'd never dream, they would have the option of asking someone else out. Mm -hmm. I think it's probably wise to make friendships with men who are not like these fellows that are throwing themselves at her money bags because this seems to upset her. So maybe go elsewhere or, or find a man that has more money than you. That's always an option too, you know? Create a dynasty. Yeah. So your advice is to become a gold digger. That's right. I Honestly, you could have given me a million guesses and how, where we would have ended up on this podcast. I would have gone, Tig says, probably gold digging is the way forward. <laughs> she said, she said, I think she said, I think I'm <laughs> quoting you here. She said, no romance without finance. Mm-hmm. You know, like Tig always says. Yeah. Yeah. I always end it with, and, and you can quote me on that. <laughs> Do you want to hear <laughs> the answer to the question? I, well, I mean, it's not going to be better than yours. No romance without finance. Go on. The answer is no. Anything won by devious means is seldom worth having. Moreover, you would not be happy being married to a working man, and you are unlikely to meet any other if you live as a working girl. Why don't you plunge yourself into social or political or religious work where you will meet men of a more sincere and serious type than you have met in a rather empty, too wealthy existence? You have saved yourself from mercenary marriage by your own common sense. The same common sense will find you the right man in time. Okay. I mean, it's not terrible. I mean, the whole, when you've got some money, do you need a man that desperately? What else could you be doing? What else is going on in your life? Go plunge yourself into social or political or religious work. Jimmy, I appreciate you coming on this show. It it has been an absolute joy. I I love the show. I think it's, it's such a fun Former and it's, you're great. You're great. Is there anything that you'd like to promote, Jimmy? 
Uh, I got a book out. I got like. I mean, if you like any of this stuff, I like. I got a book out called Before and After, which is uh, I'm very proud of. But I wrote that for my son. I wrote that in the lockdown, like the biography self help thing. Oh, nice! And I've got a new Netflix special called His Dark Material, which is uh, out on Netflix now. It's uh, it's pretty funny. Awesome. Well, thank you again for doing the show. Yeah, thanks, and thanks everyone behind the scenes. I very much appreciate it. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Wait, wait, one more minute before you go. A lot of you have been asking why I don't call tickets to my Hello Again tour tickets. Well, I'm going to give the people what they want. Go to my website, tignotaro.com, and buy your tickets now. Don't be late. Tickets are selling fast. Okay? There, I said tickets. Now go buy them. Don't Ask Tig is hosted by me, Tig Notaro. It's produced by Thomas Willette, Shana Deloria, and Ryan Lohr. Our executive producer and editor is Beth Perlman. Engineering and sound mixing by Johnny Vince Evans and Eric Romani. Digital production by James Napoli. Talent booking by Marianne Ways. Production support from Pizza Shark and Dan Latou. Our theme music is Friend and Tig by Edie Burkell and Kyle Crusham. And Listen to Your Heart by Edie Burkell. Special thanks to Hunter Seidman. APM Studios executives in charge are Lily Kim, Alex Shafford, and Joanne Griffith. Concept developed by Tracy Mumford. Our executive consultant is Dean Capello and Gobsmack Studios. You can always ask for advice at don'tasktig.org. Just write in with your problem or send us a voice memo. Remember to follow us on social media at Don't Ask Tig. Don't Ask Tig is a production of American Public Media. And as always, thanks, Dana. And I'll tell Becky. Hi, I'm stand-up comedian and sex symbol Tig Notaro. And I'm actor and writer Cheryl Hines. Before Cheryl and I got into the big business of podcasting together, (laughs) we were just simply friends. And we're still friends. But now we talk about a different documentary every week on our podcast, Tig and Cheryl, True Story. So whether you love documentaries 
or just want to hear us slowly lose our minds, check out Tig and Cheryl True Story wherever you get your podcasts. All right, cool. <laughs> 